We are getting close to wrapping up our Church Matters sermon series. It will actually conclude on September 12th, um, concluding with our 75th anniversary celebration. But we've been going through this, this series where we try and join alongside our culture and our society asking the question, does church matter, right? Like what is significant, what is relevant, what's important about church? And we've been kind of progressing through a few key ideas and, and this week we kind of will start to land on our last one and I'll dig deep into that here in a moment. But I want to start with, with the story from my own childhood when I was probably... It's one of my earliest memories, so I was probably like four or five, maybe a little bit younger than that. But it's, it's one of these things that I remember clear, clear as day. Um, when I was, like I said, probably four, maybe four, um, there was an evening where my parents pulled my, me and my older sister, she was two years older than me, aside and said, um, we have somebody coming over. And I don't remember, I can't remember if it was the neighbors that were coming over to, to try and involve us in like some sort of... Tupperware sales, I, I, something like that. Like I, can't, I remember that, but that might be me mi- mixing two stories together. But for whatever reason, we were having somebody come over to the house, and my dad made it very clear that they were not supposed to be disturbed. And so us kids were supposed to stay upstairs that whole time. Don't come down for any reason. Don't interrupt the adults. There was important business going on. And like I said, I don't remember what the business was, but I knew that I knew that I was not supposed to go downstairs for any reason I was told not to come downstairs. I was not going downstairs. Um, and so my sister and I, we played games upstairs for a while. I think watched a movie maybe, um, played in the bedroom, you know, hide and seek or whatever. But there's only so much that two kids that are four and six can do before they start wondering what's going on downstairs. But we're trying to be good kids. Dad said, don't come downstairs. Don't interrupt. So we stayed up there and we stayed up there. And we realized that this meeting that they were in was just dragging on and on. And like, it's past dinner time and we haven't eaten. And as a four-year-old, I may have been a little bit dramatic. Luckily, I outgrew that. But as a four-year-old, I was dramatic. And I thought, we're never going to eat again. And so luckily for me, I had, uh, and like I said, I remember this clear as day. Like, you know candy that's like sweet tarts? Like that hard tart candy? Well, I had uh, two... Um, little containers that had skeletons where the bones were made out of those sweet tart type things. Remember? All right. I had those set aside. Those were like my favorite thing as a, uh, whatever age this was, four-year-old. And I had two. And so I gave my sister one. And I had one. And that was what we ate to tide us over until like our parents came and rescued us from upstairs. And so we ate those. And of course, that didn't make any dent. It probably made us more hungry than anything. And so we're up there kind of starting to worry like we're never going to get to go downstairs and we're like like I said a little bit dramatic so I was like well I'm hungry I need to eat and so we started debating whether or not we should eat toothpaste like I said we were <laughs> we were trying to solve this problem ourselves. we wanted to be good kids we didn't want to upset dad we didn't want to interrupt but man I, we were getting hungry and I, I can't remember if we actually messed around with the toothpaste or not but I remember clearly debating it um Maybe that explains some stuff that goes on with me now. I ate a bunch of toothpaste when I was a kid. But at some point, I got up enough nerve to come down the stairs. And we, the first half of the stairs was kind of blocked by the wall. But when you got like two-thirds of the way down, like you were exposed into the living room. And so I was kind of creeping around that, that wall. And I was looking. And I just saw my dad and my mom 
sitting at the table talking. There was nobody else there. And so I said, Dad, can we come downstairs? He said, what are you guys doing? They've been gone for two hours. Um, and so I hollered up at my sister and we came down and we got dinner. And, but we kind of complained. Like, we didn't know we were supposed to, nobody came and got us. Nobody came and told us what was available to us. Nobody came and told us that we could come down. Nobody came and told us there was another thing we could be doing. And so we're up there debating, eating toothpaste and eating my prized candy skeleton collection. So we were just two young kids trying to do the right thing, trying to do the best that we knew how with the information that we had. How are we supposed to know that we could have come down unless somebody was to come and tell us? And so this morning, the scripture that I want us to look at is, is, is along those same lines, believe it or not, not whether or not you should eat toothpaste, but along the same lines is how are people going to know things if they're not told? People are out doing the best that they know how, but if nobody tells them there's another way, how will they know it? And so I'd invite you to join with me in, in reading Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 15. It'll be on the screens, or if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, um, follow along this way. This is the NIV, um, Romans chapter 9, or chapter 10, verses 9 through 15. It says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is within it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. Pray with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, this word that you have for us this morning. This letter from 2,000 years ago that the Apostle Paul wrote to a, a gathering of Christians in in the Roman Empire, in the city of Rome. May the words that he wrote to them that were inspired by you, may they again be inspired by you and speak to our hearts and our souls today. May we become people who understand how beautiful the feet are of those who bring the good news. We thank you and we love you. Amen. So a few weeks ago, we looked at uh, a small passage from the book of Romans. We haven't done a whole lot of study in Romans since I've been here, um, about a year now, which is kind of crazy to, to believe. But um, Paul wrote to the Roman church to, to help unite the Jewish Christians and the Gentile, the non-Jewish Christians. There was a division in the Roman church between Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians. There were some external factors that played into that, that created that separation. But there was a distinct... Uh, line of differentiation. There was a difference between um, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians in the church in Rome to the point where Paul is concerned that there's going to be two separate churches. Like this could be uh, a challenge to the gospel and we'll get into that in a moment because like I said, Paul is writing to, to bring unity under the gospel, in the gospel, through the gospel. So before we get into the question of like what is 
Paul trying to do here? What is he trying to say? We need to have a foundational understanding of what is the gospel. And to do that, we need to understand what is a gospel. So the word gospel isn't something that Jesus invented. He didn't come to earth and say, I'm going to create the concept, the idea of a gospel. There was gospels that existed before the time of Jesus. Now, they weren't the gospels of Jesus, obviously, but there were gospels. And, And I think I've talked about this a little before, but when a new when a king would conquer a territory, when an empire would expand, when a kingdom would move into and conquer another land, the ruler of that land would send a gospel, a, a letter of good news to the citizens of that newly conquered territory. And so think the Roman Empire is, is doing its Roman Empire thing and it's conquering new lands. If you were in that conquered, newly conquered territory, your people, your village would receive a messenger that would bring a letter, a gospel that said, this is your new king. Good news, you've been conquered. Good news, you are now part of the Roman Empire. Good news, you now have these benefits. Let us tell you a little bit about your king. Your king was XYZ, born in a spectacular fashion. Your king is, is, has these special abilities. Your king is, has this reputation, this wealth, this power. And then kind of part of this gospel, part of this good news was, how do you live as a citizen of Rome now? How do you live as a conquered people of Rome? What are the expectations on you now that you have a new ruler? You know, you drive by a store in town and it says under new management. Like, that's what the Gospels was. It was an indication that you are now under new management. And so, the Gospel of Jesus Christ is the announcement that you're under new management and your new manager is Jesus. The new king is Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is an announcement that Jesus is king, and as king, Jesus is going to declare what the laws of the land are. He's going to tell you how to live and how not to live. He announces the values and the priorities of the kingdom, right? He announces the kingdom's view of war, violence, the kingdom's view on poverty, the kingdom's view on sick people, the kingdom's view of, of widows and orphans, right? Like, This is why when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are called the Gospels. These are letters that announce the values of the kingdom. It announces what King Jesus is up to. It announces who is the greatest in the kingdom and who is the least. So like, Jesus is your king. Here's how the kingdom is organized. But also in in these Gospels, you see um, that Jesus, as king pronounces forgiveness and judgment. So he's the king of the kingdom. He gets to decide who still owes debt and whose debt is forgiven. As, as king, he gets to decide who who's still has obligations to pay, who's, who's going to be judged and who's going to be uh, set free, who's going to receive mercy and who's going to receive judgment. As king, he has that right. Jesus also gets to declare who will be invo- invited to the royal banquets. We see this language show up a lot in the gospel accounts. Who gets to come to the feast? Who gets invited to the table? And who does not? Those who pledge their allegiance to King, to King Jesus, cannot be divided and separated into other categories. This is what Paul is, is saying in this passage of Romans. If, if you've uh, pledged your allegiance to King Jesus, if you are ruled by King Jesus, everyone, regardless of your status, regardless of your nationality, regardless of your gender, regardless of your, your wealth, everyone can experience the blessings of salvation. Whoever calls Jesus your king can be saved, right? 
And the salvation is, is more than just a checkbox, I get to go to heaven when I die, but it's, I get to live in the kingdom, right? Salvation is having the right, good, loving king. Jesus has saved us from a lifetime of service to the wrong king in the wrong kingdom. And so anyone who declares that Jesus is king, anyone who declares that Jesus is Lord, can experience salvation. Jew or Gentile, it didn't matter. Anyone who calls on the name of Jesus can be saved, is what Paul is saying here. Now, call upon the name of the Lord, that means to worship or serve the king. It's not just to say Jesus every once in a while. It's not to end our prayer by saying in Jesus' name or something. Um, It means to follow King Jesus. It means to obey King Jesus. It means to acknowledge that he is the Lord, which is just a religious word for king, of our lives. To call on the name of the Lord does not mean to label yourself as a Christian or to say you believe things about Jesus. It's not a matter of status or identity or belief. It means to embrace Jesus as king, to receive his mercy and his forgiveness, to shape your life according to the instructions of the king. I mean, imagine you were in a land that was, that was conquered and this messenger shows up and says, you have a new king and here's how he wants you to live. There's no neutral territory. You can either accept the message that there's a new king or you can continue to live under the old way and not believe the message. But there's no neutral ground. You've got to do something with the message. And so that's the same of the Gospels. Here's the story of King Jesus. And anyone who hears it can respond to it and anyone who responds to it can declare Jesus as their king. And like Paul said, it could be Jewish people, non-Jewish, rich, poor, healthy, sick, people of high status, people of poor reputation, people that were religiously pure and good, people that were sinners of the worst kind, right? The kingdom was available to anyone. All who call on the name of the Lord can be saved. And so the gospel with this, this, this transformed life, this abundant mercy, this wide open invitation to pledge your allegiance to King Jesus, it was available to anyone who surrendered their life to King Jesus. You could become a citizen of this kingdom without qualification, without merit, without anything required of you other than to pledge your allegiance to King Jesus. But for, for Paul, there's a problem here. And this is really what the, the root of, of Romans chapter 10 is getting to. There's a, a problem in this. Now, so far, this has really sounded like a lot of good news. Anyone who claims Jesus as king, anyone who wants to can move into the kingdom of God if they surrender and obey King Jesus. This sounds like amazing news. Mercy, grace, forgiveness available to anyone who seeks it. But for Paul, there's a problem. The gospel is good news for everyone, yet not everyone is calling on the name of the Lord. There are people who haven't pledged allegiance to King Jesus. There are people who haven't experienced this forgiveness. There are people who haven't been freed from the debt of sin and death and and the power that it has over their life. There are people whose lives haven't been shaped and transformed by this kingdom. And for Paul, this is a problem. According to the scriptures, everyone can experience new life and salvation by following King Jesus. But there are people who are not experiencing it. And Paul's not okay with that. He said, that's a problem. So Paul, in his letter, decides to break down the problem for us to make sure that we understand what the problem is. He starts out um, with the statement, everyone who calls on the name of Jesus can be saved. It's a good foundational premise, right? 
but people can't call on the name of a resurrected king if they don't believe and they don't trust in that resurrected king. And people can't believe in King Jesus if they have not heard about King Jesus. And people can't hear about King Jesus and the kingdom of God if someone isn't preaching about King Jesus. And the word for preaching uh, in Romans 10 isn't the word about like preparing a sermon and speaking it to a church. The word preaching is proclaiming, announcing, declaring, bringing the gospel, the good news that Jesus is king. And who is going to announce and preach and proclaim King Jesus if people aren't sent to go? The word apostle, that is a very uh, common word we find if you live in, in, in the church at all, you hear the word apostle all the time. It literally means one who is sent. Paul takes that name for himself. He says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's one who is sent by Jesus. He's one of these ambassadors that goes out and tells people there's a new king. So that's the context of Romans chapter 10. This is the scripture that we're going to let shape our story for today. And this week in the sermon series, The the Church Matters, we we move on to the the fourth E. If you've been following along, we've had four different E phrases that have kind of guided this thing. The first one was embrace community. Then we encountered God. Then we experienced service. And now we're on engaged culture. And we're going to break the engaged culture down into two separate weeks, two parts. This week is engaged culture as missionaries. Next week we will engage culture as tour guides in the kingdom, helping people find their way. Now there was a time in recent history where participation in the church was just assumed in our culture. Society just had kind of a default value that said church is probably a good thing overall. Um, Not everyone would attend church services, not everyone would go to the activities, not everyone would were regular church attenders, but overall our society had a general assumption, even people that didn't attend, if you had a conversation with them, they would say, yeah, I don't go, but I probably should. It's probably would be better if I did, but I just don't. Right? There was just an assumption, a foundational idea that going to church was a good thing, participating in the church was good. <coughs> the idea was that church would make you a moral person, more compassionate person, a, a better, uh, deeper developed character, right? more kind, more trustworthy. Even people that would attend, you know, the Christmas Easter folks, right, that, that would attend the big holiday services and that, it, even if you talk to them, they would still say it's important. Church is important. Church is good. Um, but due to a variety of factors, and we don't have time to dig into all of that today, but due to a variety of factors, um, this is no longer the case. We've been asking the question, does church matter? And, and, and honestly, in our day and age, you're going to get, instead of one question that's, or one answer that says, yeah, church matters, we get two answers. For those who were loosely connected with the church, those who were maybe on the, the peripheral, kind of one foot in, one foot out, or just had their toe in the water of the church life, their answer has become, no, not really. Not really all that interested in church. They've moved farther away. It has They've answered the question, does church matter, by saying, eh, not as much as maybe it used to for me. But those who are deeply connected with their church have actually grown in their participation. There's, there's Barna and Pew uh, research organizations that have the data to back this up, that people that maybe used to um, 
be somewhat committed, like mostly committed to church, have actually grown into a deeper commitment. Like the church has become more integral in their life. So those who used to attend two times a month now attend maybe one time a month. Those who used to attend one time a month maybe attend once every other month, once every three or four months. Those who attended on occasion, you know, the holidays and special events, they don't really attend at all anymore. But for those who attended three or four services a month, many, not all, but many have actually increased their participation in the life of the church and are at multiple services a week or multiple church activities throughout the week. And so what's happening is there's a gap that's forming between the people that say, no, nah, church really doesn't matter, and church matters a lot. The middle ground is, is vacating, but there's a gap that's forming between these two answers, these two camps. There's a smaller, more committed group declaring that church matters, but at the same time, there's a growing indifference in our society and our culture to church. It's not a belief that church is bad, although you'll hear those themes sometimes, and sometimes we Christians get a little defensive or territorial or maybe even have a little bit of martyr complex and feel like we're being persecuted. And, and, and there's some people out there that really are against the church. But overall, society is just neutral. They're not actively trying to shut us down. They're not actively trying to hurt us. They just don't see any value in it. It's just indifferent. It doesn't affect their lives. So the default value, the default assumption years ago was, well, church is good even if I don't go. Now the default setting is just kind of, eh, it is what it is. Like I said, there's some people that probably think church is harmful. Um, now I say all of that to say this. Non-Christians don't wake up on Sunday morning with the idea that they need to go to church. People that aren't a part of the church, people that have moved away from the church, or people who have never been in the church don't feel any pressure, any obligation, any sense of, well, we better get in the church this week. When they encounter problems and challenges in their lives, they don't go to church for help. Where generations ago, that was the answer. If you had a problem, you call the pastor. If you had a problem, you go to the church. You come to church, you'd pray, you'd, whatever. They don't. When they have questions about finding meaning and purpose in their lives, non-Christians in our society aren't saying, well, I better go to church to find the meaning and purpose in my life. They're seeking for it elsewhere. When they have questions about raising their kids the right way, their first instinct isn't to come to church with their kids. They have other solutions, other opportunities, other uh, avenues to find that answer. Even weddings and funerals, which still kind of happen in the church on a fairly regular basis, that's even diminishing in our culture. People feel less obligated, less of a sense of we need to have this in a church. So there's always been a gap between the church and culture. It's always been a tension. It's always existed. Um, but generally it was assumed that when people were ready for religion, when they needed something meaningful, when they needed help, when they needed a community of people to, to walk with them, that eventually those people would come to the church. They would, they would come to a service, they would come, and, and we could help them. And we would be ready for them. That was kind of the model, the assumption of how things work. So churches built buildings, and they built programs based on the idea that people will come to us with their needs, and we need to be ready to help them. People are going to come to us, and we have to have something for them. But something started happening a few decades ago. The trends go back a few decades People stopped coming. 
Society started changing. Church attendance programs were less attended. Like it, it started to decline and, and dwindle. Membership dropped. Attendance dropped. We have kids today, young kids today, that not only did their parents never attend church, but their grandparents either were the generation that left the church or they never attended the church. It used to be, you know, if if the parents weren't bringing the kids to church, like grandma would make sure the kids got to Sunday school, right? But we've got the grandma generation out there that knows nothing about church, nothing about the Christian life. And so there's a huge gap, this huge canyon that exists between the church and the rest of society. You guys feel it. I know you do because we have these conversations. We, we lament it. We grieve it, how far society has moved away from the values of the church, away from the life in the church. It's to the point that church culture and secular culture are two totally different worlds right now. It's divided by this gap, this canyon. I mean, church has its own practices, our own habits, our own values, our own language, our own shared experiences, that non-church people, not only do they not do those things, but they don't understand them. Like praying, communion, baptism, uh, coming to church and listening to a sermon, uh, giving in offerings and, and, and those types of things, right? Like those are practices that are pretty commonplace in the church, that if you're in a church, you just kind of know that that's, those things happen. But if you're outside the church, You have no idea what any of those things, how they function, what's the purpose, how that works. Now, Christian missionaries, we we as as Christians have a long history of of sending people into foreign lands and bringing the gospel to them, which is one of our mission statements, right? Like it's one of the big values of our church is like as a Nazarene denomination, like missions is a big deal. And we have these missionaries who go to foreign countries and they, before they go, they have to prepare themselves They have to do a lot because they're going to have to overcome this gap between where they are and the culture and community to which they're going. And so they maybe learn a new language. Maybe they learn about the culture. Maybe they, um, you know, learn what the lifestyle looks like. Maybe they they have to learn about the people that they're going to to minister to. So, for example, if I was called to be a missionary in Korea... Like, what would I need to do to go successfully minister in Korea? Like, number one, I'd probably need to at least know how to communicate, right? So learn the language. I have to learn the food. What's, what does it mean? Like, the customs of the culture, society. Like, what, are, what is offensive? What is commonplace? What, is, what do you do? What are the routines, the, the cultural norms, right? If I was going to be a missionary in Korea, I would need to learn how to find the common ground between my experiences and the experiences of people that live differently than I do and and understand how do those things, while different, how do they overlap? How do I communicate the truth of the gospel even though we're from different cultures? And the reality is to be a a missionary uh, takes a tremendous amount of work, tremendous amount of cross-cultural work. You have to prepare, you have to study, you have to understand what, what the people that you're ministering to, who they are, you need to understand how they work. So for the local American church that sees this gap between our community that we are situated in and the church, we see this growing, widened chasm, this, this canyon that's between there. If we approach things with the, if you build it, they will come model of ministry, and there's this gap in the middle, who are we expecting to do the work of overcoming that gap? 
Who are we expecting to, who's responsible to learn the new language? Who's responsible to learn and to listen? Who's responsible to, to learn a new culture? Who's responsible to overcome those barriers so that they can receive the gospel? Who's learning to speak the language of the other group? Who's learning new practices? Who's responsible to do the work of understanding people who are different than they are, right? We're asking the people to come to us and they have to do all this work to get here. The idea that the church can build buildings and programs for people to come assumes that non-Christians will do all the work to cross that gap. It assumes that non-Christians will be properly motivated but will also have the ability to do that work to get to come where we are so we can minister to them. I mean, have you ever gone to a new church? Have you ever been a visitor or gone to a new church for the first time, like you move? Like as a, as a lifelong Christian, stepping into a church for the first time is intimidating, it's overwhelming, it can be confusing. And that's a, even if you're just a, a Christian who's just stepping into a different church for the first time. Can you imagine the barriers in place if you walk into the church for the first time, if you're not a Christian? Let's say you're a young adult, you're married, you got a couple of kids whose only experience of church was, you know, uh, you went to a couple funerals, you went to some weddings, and you were invited to a VBS when you, 25 years ago with your weird neighbor. Um, and that's your experience of church. Think of the challenges, think of the questions you'd, you'd have, think of uh, how difficult it would be to walk through those doors for the first time. And if you're, if you're having a hard time just fully comprehending how difficult of a task that is. Um, imagine that after service today, that I'm asking you, inviting you all, giving you homework, that sometime during this week you have to go and attend a worship service at a mosque. Right? I need you to go worship at a mosque this week. Do you even know what time service happens at a mosque? Do you even know where like, a good mosque would be at? Right? Do you, even, do you even know, like, what should I wear? What, do I stand up? Do I sit down? Should I stay in the back? Do I need to go talk to somebody first? Can I bring my kids or not? Right? But, like, for some people, for a big portion of our society that have been unchurched, coming to first church here is the same experience for them as it would be for us going into a mosque or a synagogue. Now, as church people, that, that seems really hard to wrap our mind around. I mean, it's a church, right? It's Sunday morning, it's this time, this is how sermons work. But for people that haven't grown up or been a part of the church culture, that's what it's like. How big of a challenge would it be for you to attend service at a mosque or a synagogue? Now, there are people in our neighborhoods and our schools and our places of employment that would <clears throat> find the, the life-changing gospel to be good news. There's people that you know that, that we live around, that we live with, that would have their lives radically transformed if they heard the good news that Jesus is king and that everything can change and that there's mercy and forgiveness available to them. It would be life-changing to them. There are people who need forgiveness and freedom from sin. There are people who need grace and mercy to escape a destructive way of living. There are people who need to know that Jesus is king and that that king cares for them. There are people who need to know that they are not alone no matter what their sins have been or no matter what they feel like that they've done is too, too bad or who they are, that they are invited into a kingdom of care, a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of fellowship. As Paul said, any of these people who call upon the name of Jesus can be saved. 
we have the, the slide. This is the one thing I want you guys to remember this week. This is the point of, of it all. The gospel is life-changing good news. If the church is willing to share it. Paul said, how can they believe if they have not heard? And how can they hear if somebody's going to tell them? And who's going to tell them if nobody's willing to go? How can the ones... How, how can they call on the one that they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? How are they going to hear with someone proclaiming, announcing, preaching about King Jesus? Who is going to share the gospel of Jesus with them? Well, Paul says it's those who are sent. Who is the sent ones? Who are the apostles? Who are the ones that Jesus has sent into the world to make disciples? Well, collectively... We are <laughs> the church. You, me, us, we together are sent ones. Um, Alan Hirsch, who's a, 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 a missional church planter, uh, author, pastor, says there's no such thing as an unsent Christian. And when I heard that 15 years ago, I'm like, oh, that sounds cool. But over time, that has just kind of marinated in my, my soul there's no such thing as an unsent Christian. Jesus gives his followers the mission of going into the world and making disciples for King Jesus. And for a long time, I mean, a long time, church has understood the going as a very special vocation. Go into the world and make disciples. Well, those who are called to go, that's a unique, maybe a small subset of the group. Um, maybe you go to a foreign country and you share the gospel with un, uh, unreached people. That's what mission kind of defaulted to in the church. But in the past few decades, yes, mission and missional has become a buzzword in church culture. It's become kind of a catchphrase, everything's missional, everything's mission, right? But it's a corrective. The church is breathing life back into its own understanding of what it means to be the church. In the past few decades, this movement has been growing in the church to remember the special calling of a church to be proactive in its community to go outside the walls and to go uh, outside its buildings, to go outside its programs and connect with people where they are. To do the, the, the cross-cultural work, to, to be the ones compelled, the ones responsible to cross that gap from the church to the unchurched people. No longer is the church content to sit back and say, well, if you can get here, we'll help you. Instead, the church is saying, we are going to go outside and go find these people that need to hear this message. And so we've been asking for the past several weeks, does, does church matter? As your pastor, I'm declaring boldly, as I do every week, yes, church matters. For many of us lifelong Christians, it's hard to imagine life without faith. It's hard to imagine our lives without the church, without Jesus. So not only does church matter, that would be an understatement, right? Like it's critical, it's foundational, it's part of who we are, it's life-defining for us. For those who aren't Christians, who haven't been Christians, who haven't been church members, who haven't served in various ministries, or who haven't had people praying with them, these people who maybe just don't know how much church can matter, maybe they don't know what a difference Jesus can make, how will they ever know unless we share our faith with them? And so the invitation for us today is to see yourself as a missionary, to see yourself as a missionary who is equipped and sent by God to share the good news with those you encounter. Because if we don't see ourselves as being sent, who do we think 
will go to those who need to hear the gospel. If not us, then who? If not the church, who's going to do it? We should grieve for our communities and our neighbors and our loved ones who don't know the peace and love of Christ. We should be driven by compassion and the love of God to share the good news of Jesus with those who don't know it. It's not that they haven't heard, or it's not that they have heard the gospel and have rejected it. There are some. There are people that have have chosen, made the choice to leave the church or to reject it flat out. But there's many who have never even heard it. They've never heard the good news of Jesus. And so I'm asking you to see yourself as a missionary equipped and sent by God to share the good news with those you encounter.